Homespun is the cloth that people wove at home when they couldn't afford to purchase it during pioneer times, the early days of the church. Um, but what's interesting to me is the is the conjunction of the two, the intersection of the mundane and the sacred, because I think that's that's what religion is about. You know, that's the bringing the the weak with the divine. You know. I sat down last spring with Darlene Young, a poetry, fiction, and creative nonfiction writer who teaches in the English department at BYU. We spoke about her two volumes of published poems, Homespun and Angel Feathers, published in 2019, and Here, published just a couple weeks ago in the spring of 2023. We also talked about the relationship between poetry and faith, bringing humor to sacred things, and finding a distinctive voice as a poet and as a devoutly religious person. I'm Matthew Wickman of the BYU Faith and Imagination Institute. So I occasionally invite uh, poets onto the podcast to discuss their own work, or else I'll invite scholars onto the podcast who've edited volumes of poetry. Um, you, Darlene Young, sitting here across the table, it's nice to be in person here, you're the first poet I've had who belongs to uh, my own religious tradition, right? The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So perhaps I could begin by asking a couple questions about that subject. Um, there are many fine Latter-day Saint poets, but is there, in your view, an identifiable tradition of Latter-day Saint poetry? And if so, do you see yourself writing in that tradition? Such a good question. So when you use this word tradition, um, it, you know, it makes me wonder, what really does that mean? You know, it, it, to me, that implies sort of a conversation that poets are having with each other um, over time. And is there an, an identifiable LDS tradition? It's a good question. Um, I don't, I think in the early days of the church, there was. So we mm. had poets like um, Eliza Snow and W.W. W. Phelps. Right. Um, who were talking to each other and who were creating something and, and maybe building on each other. And then I don't think we really had much until about the 60s when um, BYU Studies and Dialogue came on the scene. Part of that is because there just w weren't many places to publish. I mean, unless it was didactic and traditionally rhyming and meant to, you know, help preach the gospel to ourselves and to others. There wasn't really a place for that, and it wasn't really a conversation, which I think is kind of implied when we talk about tradition. Maybe a forward motion. Right. Um, and then once we had places for poets to publish, like those those journals that I mentioned, I think that there was a conversation. Like, it exploded with all sorts of people writing. Um, I wasn't aware of it, though. When I started writing, I didn't know um, that people were writing LDS poems because I didn't subscribe to those those lit magazines and um, those are the only places that those poems were appearing. There was a, um, I don't know if you remember, there was some overtone of kind of naughtiness about dialogue and sunstone among some Orthodox members. Yeah, I, I do remember very well. Yeah. And so it was like, um, at first, when I even first discovered the magazines, I wasn't even sure I was supposed to read them. And then, <laughs> and then if I published in them, would that turn off? I, I like to speak to Orthodox members as well as members who are on the edge. And I worried I would harm my audience by, you know, being one of those. I feel differently now. I'm really, really grateful to those publications for providing a place. 
But when I started writing, what I knew pretty much was Carolyn Pearson. Mm-hmm. And other than that, I didn't think anyone else was doing it, which is why it was so exciting for me to do it. Yeah, you bet. Well, these are, I mean, so you write about religious subjects, not exclusively, but many of your poems are on religious subjects. And I'd say more than just matters of religion, really about matters of faith. And you write, be- these are very faithful, faith-inspired and inspiring poems in my estimation. I, I, let me ask you this question then. So is that connection to faith coincidental, right, in your case? It, it, it's part of your life, so you write about it. Or is it not coincidental, but more essential to, to, to your work? Um, and if it is essential, what for you is the connection between poetry and faith? Yeah, okay, so there's two ways that I think um, that these are connected. The first is it is it is part of my life, and so it's natural to write about it. I write about what I know. I am a committed um, member of a religious congregation of a certain persuasion, and so it's going to come out. It's just going to come out in how I write. It's who I am. Um, but I feel like the practice of writing poetry, separate from reading it maybe, um, is has informed my faith. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about it... Um, there are a lot of things that poetry has in common with a, a faith journey or a faithful walk. For example, the um, poetry is very open to the ambiguous, right? Um, if, if I didn't want, if I weren't interested in ambiguity, or as you say in your book, gaps, mm. um, then I'd just write in prose. I'd make, I'd make my meaning as clear as I could and, and not leave any place for misinterpretation. I'd write an essay. Um, but poetry leaves some things open, and I think as I try to compose a poem, I like leaving those things open. I like being open to surprise, and I th- think that the process of having faith is like that too. The moving forward in the face of what you don't know, the being open to surprise, the saying I don't know everything. So there's that. Um, I also like how poetry is about the framing of things. Mm-hmm. So when you choose where the poem is or what to write, um, you're telling a story or you're interpreting something for yourself. And I think that's what we do in our lives too. Like I can interpret this thing that happened to me or this struggle that I'm having um, in one way or another. I can frame it in a faithful way or in a, in a questioning way or in a um, slam dunk way or in a I, I don't know what I'm doing kind of way. And I feel like the way I address my faith is similar to the way I would address a poem. I like that. A couple of scholars I know uh, who are um, scholars of literature, but also kind of they write about literature and religion, made the point too that certain kinds of framing devices and poems, whether it's a sonnet with a certain kind of definite kind of rhyme scheme and and number of lines, or whether it's a certain kind of rhymed, uh, you know, sort of poem, has about it something, you know, where there's something inevitable at the outcome of it, so that that you kind of see an end from a beginning in a way that they've thought they they talked about that in relation to kind of the rhythms yeah. of a life of faith, the kind of these 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 acts of devotion that give structure to a life. They see that kind of structure found in poetry, and they made that connection too. Yeah. Oh, that brings up two thoughts for me, kind of going different directions. One is on the idea of that structure. I'm thinking about the conversation you had with Zachary Davis and the idea of pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how um, there's there's 
the ideal is that there's a spiritual thing that's going to happen to you. But the reality is that there's something about the plodding forward, that sometimes it's just the plodding forward. <laughs> and I feel that's with the construction of a poem, too. You have to be open to it taking you somewhere you weren't expecting like f you, there's a place for the holiness the sacred to come down but most of it is plodding forward like most of it is just moving your feet and maybe something will come and maybe it won't but on the other side there's I feel a little differently than that person you were talking to about the constraints of a of a formal poem like a sonnet because I feel like if I'm forced to write in form and I don't do it a lot but um, that forces me actually to choose different words than I thought I would. Mm. Because I, I'm writing to a rhyme and I'm, I'm, I refuse to have like convoluted syntax so that if I can't say it elegantly the way I hoped to, I'll say something different. So the constraints actually help me surprise myself. Oh, that's great. I love that. Um, speaking of surprise, it was such a great surprise for me to come across uh, this book uh, published in 2019, Homespun and Angel Feathers, this collection of poems. Um, I was so moved by it that I then uh, read your second collection that was just serendipitously, you know, out about the same time, the uh, book uh, Here, H-E-R-E. -E. Um, one thing that strikes me about the poems is that they really beautifully fuse, but it's kind of sublime, you know, um, uh, faithfully inspiring and inspired on the one hand, with what can be kind of the human absurdity, the human comedy, mm -hmm. right, on the other hand. And that kind of blending, you find that in lots of really great art, you know, um, tragedy and comedy in the works of Shakespeare, they kind of infused there, you know, kind of the gravedigger scene in Hamlet, et cetera, you know. Um, but what struck me about your poems in particular is how they mix high and low in that way, in space often imagined as sacred. And for a lot of people, there's kind of a taboo about not going, there's almost something in the brain that turns on or off, depending on where we imagine ourselves uh, in relation to what is sacred. And I'm wondering, in your case, about your creative process. Were the poems that you wrote uh, cathartic because they did cross some boundaries that way? Uh, or, you know, that you, they, they, they gave expression to, uh, you know, flawed human beings as also children of God, you know, high and low there? Or did you find that you had to overcome the taboo that can inhibit us from merging these categories together? So, I... I feel like I automatically merge those categories together. Like for me, I go to the temple and I bring my sloppy, meaty body with me that, you know, I have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the session or I, I you know, I hear the person next to me stomach gurgling. Like I, to pretend that that's not the case wouldn't be true to me. And I'm not sure that God wants us to. Mm. Like we're having physical experience and it, that's important like we know that bodies are necessary and I think that a lot of religion takes place in the connection between the physical and the and the abstract right so I I'm not interested in separating the two like a, a poem that only stays holy stays abstract and that makes it hard to access like yeah it doesn't touch me I'm looking here at your, your poem uh, in the collection here, Temples in the Temple. Exactly. Right, which is great. Just be the first few lines of it here. Today my body temple is bedraggled. I've trundled it here like an ailing donkey, dressed it and parked it, 
drifted and sloppy. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah, this is not a bad place for a nap. It goes on. Right? Yeah. You know? um, that's great. There's a poem near the beginning of uh, the collection, Homespun and Angel Feathers, uh, that caused my wife and me to laugh out loud Okay, when we read it. It's titled Angels of Mercy. Uh, would you read that poem for us? Sure. Angels of Mercy. The Seventh Ward Relief Society presidency argued long and soft whether Janie Goodmanson deserved to have the sisters bring her family meals. It seemed that precedent was vague. No one was sure if boob job qualified as a legitimate call for aid. Janie herself had never asked for help, a fault they found harder to forgive even than the vanity behind the worldliness of D-cup ambition. But in the end, charity did not fail. The sisters marched on in grim, grim duty each evening, clutching covered casseroles. For after all, it wasn't the children's fault. More than once, though, by some oversight, the dessert came out a little short, as if by some consensus they all knew that Janie's husband, Jim, could do without a piece of pie that night. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sophie is here laughing with me. Um, you know, what's, what I love about that poem is it, is it captures, I mean, there's something so very um, carnal, <laughs> right, about the reason why this certain person in the community uh, is having uh, some days where it's hard to make dinner. And yet it also kind of goes right to kind of what the society is, any religious community is about, which is service to other people irrespective of the reason for the need, right, um, which I think is such a beautiful way of kind of capturing um, something really religiously important in the middle of just human vanity and human anxiety and human need and things that are are, are really the uh, outward antithesis of what is most divine in any of us. Um, that's great. I read, by the way, my wife is currently serving as our ward's Ruth Society president. And she thought that was hilarious and also, you know, uh, came. Did we, we don't have anybody quite with that same condition, but there are certainly plenty of cases, yeah. you know, where we have our absurd human needs. I have a lot of uh, people ask me, is that true? <laughs> and I, I don't know if they're asking me which character in the in the poem is me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But, um, but I feel like absolutely it's true. I've been in ward councils. You've been in ward councils. These kinds of conversations happen all the time. You know, it's not this particular, but it's always about, do, have they asked for help? Do they deserve help? How long should we help them? Will they accept it? You know, these these questions come up all the time. And then, of course, in women's circles, the whole question about uh, plastic surgery and is it moral or not, um, these are true things. They are. Whether or not this exact situation happened. That's right. It's not time to read this entire poem. Uh, I, there are a lot of questions I want to get to with you, but there's one on the, on the sort of, opposite-facing page, um, poem called Kintsukoroi, did I say that correctly? For Joseph Smith, this from root Kintsugi, which is about, you know, kind mm -hmm. of broken pottery, kind of welded together again, we kind of laced with gold to hold together the broken pieces. It's a beautiful idea. Um, we've talked before in the podcast with uh, the artist Mako Fujimura, who does this beautifully. And you, but this is about Joseph Smith, and you mentioned a couple lines in here, you know, yes, he was rough, the coarse coupling, the intersection of dimensions, dirty and divine, the rustic needle on the holy phonograph. But I can forgive the static. Who wants a perfect prophet? 
Hick and Height, Scrub and Scripture, Limp and Lamp. He was a handshake with the heavens, calloused hands, constellations unnumbered, matter and antimatter. It's a beautiful idea. Again, these, these different dimensions of ourselves, right? What is holy on the one hand, but so human and really earthy on the other. You, I, think, I, I love how you bring that up in these collections. Um, to give, I, I, let me ask you one question, then we'll kind of read a couple of poems together. You know, there are different kinds of poems in these two collections, but there are some recurring themes, at least as I thought about them. I want to know if you, these ring true to you, if you have other ways you characterize these. This, this, this notion, this experience really of faith amid fallenness, uh, the melancholic blessing of aging, you know, it's, it's good to live a full life, but that involves aging, which can, you know, it's wistful. Uh, the blessings of religious community, however flawed it may seem to us at times. The poignancy of parenting children who enter and then leave their teenage years. A am I capturing the themes here, Craig? Do you find yourself self-consciously going back to these themes, or are these themes kind of just spontaneous, and, and you find yourself drawn to write, and these are things you write about with some recurrence? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think I consciously do. I, I have to be interested in order to create a poem. But I start with all sorts of subjects. But as I am writing, there's always the, the impulse to push to something more. So it's not enough just to have a poem about a toothpick. Um, I do have a poem about a toothpick, <laughs> but I want to push it to something more. Yeah. So I ask myself, is there a way I can... I can deepen this a little bit, always looking to surprise myself. But this is my life, right? These things, themes that you just read, this is, uh, you know, this is what I'm interested in. This is what I'm thinking about. This is how my life goes. Old lady poems and parenting and what it means to be a, a pilgrim on the path. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They spoke to me. I mean, you write, I think, really sensitively about women's issues mm -hmm. uh, here and, and, and a mom's perspective and, you know, a friend's perspective among women. Um, that's different from my experience, but these still had a real strong resonance with me. We're about peers in I'm age. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> you know, and, and I found myself kind of really uh, channeling a lot of my own thoughts about these things by way of your beautiful poems. Um, to give a list to our listeners a feel for these poems, I wonder if we could maybe read a couple at least. Sure. Um, perhaps you could start us off and read one that you like, and then I'd, I'll also read one that I was okay. especially moved by. Okay, this one is called The Young Men Go River Rafting for a Week. And I have to say I wrote this because in part when I was a teenager in the ward that I grew up in, the girls got to go to <laughs> sticky, sweaty girls camp in the mountains and the boys got to do all sorts of exciting adventures like going river rafting. But the boys in my ward did go river rafting one summer and one of the leaders was tragically thrown out of the raft and killed. Oh my goodness. So I learned at that young age that people don't always come back from these trips. So now I'm a mom and I'm sending my boys out on these trips and these are the kinds of things I go through. This poem begins with an epigraph from Maggie Smith. What can I say but stay alive? I'm channeling Soraya, she who let the men her husband and her God proclaim that though that trip back could have been avoided if they had just thought ahead, it's actually what had been intended all along. Certain struggles can change boys to men. 
For these boys, there are no brass plates whose worth could change the world, no future civilization that depends on the heroic sacrifice of phones and showers for a week. And so the men have found some artificial task. This danger sold as entertainment, Twinkies and adrenaline, its trimmings. The leaders downplay the danger, but I'm not fooled. Sometimes they don't come home. I see the headlines every year or so, scout killed on outing. I picture Lehigh patting Soraya's hand. They'll be fine, dear. Soraya's boys were gone for weeks and in the end came home triumphant, yes, but scarred, the dearest one learning to live with blood on his hands. The test is also for the mom. I'm left to wrestle through the week. What do I want and what can I let go? I love that poem. For readers not familiar, that reference to Sarai, is, it's a, it's a, a figure in the Book of Mormon, and near the beginning of the book, um, her sons, who have left Jerusalem, they head back to Jerusalem and to, 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 to get some important things they left behind. Um, and while they're there, they have uh, someone threaten their lives, and the youngest son uh, takes the life of one of the men. And so this is not um, a casual Experience and then one of the early chapters it has Soraya, uh, this mom, uh, really expressing her anguish and grief and anger toward her husband for sending them, her sons back, taking them all of them to the wilderness. So tell me about this poem here, right? This this um, it's a beautiful poem. Again, I, I love the I love this these lines. Danger sold as entertainment, Twinkies and adrenaline, its trimmings. <laughs> you know? Well, what do I have to say about this? Um, part of this is what drove this was a little bit of resentment about how the scripture story talks about Sariah. There's a little bit of negative connotation, I think, about her for murmuring, like as if she had less faith for being worried about her poor kids out there. Also, there's, you know, it's fascinating to me how we raise men in this church. And we're trying so hard, and I don't think it's a bad thing that we ask the young men to do hard things. I think men need to do hard things, as do women. Um, but it's interesting to me, the things that we've come up with, you know, sending them out to do a 50-mile trek with their Twinkies, because um, we're just trying to give them something to, to strive for. Um, and what will we replace that with now that the scouts program has gone away? Will be interesting. Yeah, right. You know, when I was a kid, uh, I'm I'm one of these you know kind of boys who were kind of raised to do these kinds of things. And one thing we had to do when I was young, they don't do any longer because it's actually kind of rather dangerous. They sent us in San Diego along the Mormon Battalion Trail. Like it was like a 25 mile hike through the desert. And you're only allowed to bring one canteen of water. And you can eat biscuits and beef jerky. And so yeah, they w walked us about 10 miles that night through the desert. So you got some of that done when it was cool. And 15 miles, and you're running out of water. They don't do that any longer. But they wanted to reproduce. This is back in like, 1981. This is going way mm -hmm. back there, right? Um, now, you know, they, they, they learned that you better not do this because if there's dehydration, right. there could be, you know, let's not yeah. have casualties along Brings the trail. Brings to mind the uh, pioneer treks that they used to do where you had to yeah. catch your turkey and pluck it and skin <laughs> right. it and it's right. starve if you don't want to eat it. Yeah. That's right. You know, you're, the, you're the mom of sons. I'm the, I'm the dad of daughters, actually. So yeah. We read one here, if I may. Uh, this is from Collection Homespun Angel Feathers. Um, a beautiful poem called Pantum from Mary at the Tomb. Um, I choose this one for a couple reasons. For one, um, the episode of Mary at the Tomb in John, chapter 20, is my favorite passage in all of Scripture. 
Um, and also, I, I, there are um, several poems in this collection about women in the Bible. Uh, and, and I think that's um, a really uh, nice feature of these poems, the perspective they capture from these stories where so much goes unspoken, but where they're just so dense with possibility. Um, by the way, I'll mention it's titled Pantum from Mary the Tomb. A pantum is a complex poetic form. It's made up of four line stanzas, or the second and fourth lines of each stanza make up the first and third lines of the following stanza, right? So if you hear some repetition listeners, um, that's uh, intended and it adds to the poem's power in my view. So here's this poem. Her weeping is the only sound. The birds hold their breath. What's missing, what she fears, this is all she can think. She has her back to him. If only she would turn around. Curled in on herself, she perches between light and what's missing. What she fears is all. She can think her arm braces her, but it blocks her progress. Curled in as she is on herself, perched between dark and the light which, coming from above, catches both a slant. She braces herself, but her arm blocks her progress. We observe from ground level. We know the secret. We see through the light from above that catches both a slant. He is there, endlessly patient. Observing from ground level, we know the secret. This is the moment just before the moment of what matters. He is there, endlessly patient. He waits for her to turn her face to the future before he calls to her. In this moment, just before the moment of what matters, the sun is shifting. The shadow on his face will withdraw as he waits for her to turn her face to the future. Before he calls to her, his face, though hidden, is bent toward her. As the sun shifts, the shadow over his face will withdraw. His palms are open. Surely comfort is there. His face, though hidden, is bent toward her. He is about to call her name. He stands with comfort in his open palms. I want to tell her to turn around. Maybe he is about to call her name. And then all shall be well and all shall be well. I want to tell her to turn around. Maybe it's his love for her in her pain that makes him pause. All shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. But we are all each stuck in this moment. Perhaps in his pauses, in our pain, there is love for us. If she could stop weeping, she might hear the birds. Everyone alive is stuck in this moment. I want to turn around. Such a beautiful poem. I just love that. I love how it captures and it, and it keeps us in that moment, the dramatic moment, right, when Mary is weeping at the tomb and Christ is there behind her. We readers see it. She does not see it. Um, and even Jesus at that moment doesn't say, hey, it's me, right? He just asks her why she's weeping and she thinks he's the gardener for a minute. The way he allows that, the way he dignifies her pain by allowing her to express it, that's really the moment at which this poem pauses. I love that about poetry in general. It can, it can both collapse time and speed things up, but can also really extend our experience 
of very small moments and allow us to see and feel so much. In this case here, what she is thinking and feeling, what Christ may be thinking as Christ gazes on her, our own plight uh, as people who have our own pains and who need to turn around in our own ways. All this I find just beautiful about that poem. Oh, thank you. Who wouldn't want such an attentive reader? Thank you so much. That's what I mean by choosing what to frame. I mean, you're getting it that that's the moment that interests me because that's the moment most of us spend most of our lives in, right? I, I think you in your book talk about the Holy Saturday, mm-hmm. concept of Holy Saturday. It's the, that's what's interesting to me because that's where most of us spend our time. Um, the minutes before the miracle comes. I, um, I need to mention that this is a necrastic poem that's based on a painting by J. Kirk Richards. That's oh, my I love, think, by the way. Um, the poem benefits a little bit if someone can see the way that the shadow is working and you know um, yeah so that's what I meant to do with that so I'm so it's so great to hear a reader pick up all it's that fantastic. stuff <laughs> I love it thank you do you have one more you could read for us sure so I'm going to read prayer language oh good I love this poem too prayer language. We are to add est and eth to every verb, a tradition left over from a time when the words meant dearest, love of my life. Now they are meant to make the language holy, sacred, not secret, set apart like a Sabbath. Thou art. Apparently, I shouldn't love you the same way I love gelato or the call of a chickadee on a lonely lonely afternoon as if they weren't the same thing. At church, children and newcomers talk to you straight out, not yet suspecting how strange this sounds to us long-time worshipers. How exciting. Once they realize, they blush and stutter, adding letters indiscriminately. I'm done with it. It's like wearing boxing gloves for our thumb matches, God, and I won't have it. Thou art puts you in the sky somewhere, and the sky is only half the story. You are my hero and my nemesis and everything in between. You are my heartbeat and distant drums, my breath and the glamorous squabble of aspen and spruce on the mountainside. You abide like the sequels of blockbusters, all of them with you in the title, return of, revenge of. You are subject and object, rain and blood, darling. This is so great. This really goes to, for those unfamiliar with Latter-day Saint prayer practices, there is a tendency to use the language of King James Bible language, the these and the thous. Um, I do it myself. It's a common standard Latter-day Saint practice. And it does acquire its own kind of like uh, prayerful specificity, right? That you're talking to God when you speak in a certain kind of voice. And it can be a form of intimacy. But it also can be forbidding and distancing and King's Englishy and you know and again I love at this 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 the way you capture this um, where was the, these lines um, okay you are my heartbeat and distant drums my breath and the glamorous squabble of aspen and spruce on the mountainside I love that, by the way. The, the aspen and spruce, there's, there's, there's such a, a haunting and a hissing sound of, 
of wind through trees, but the, but you but the way you describe it is glamorous squabble. It's a great way to capture that very distinctive kind of sound. Uh, and then that, that line that you buy that the sequels of blockbusters, all of them with you in the title, Return All Revenge. That's great. Again, this, this gift for kind of going high and low in these poems is just so distinctively you, Darlene. It's such a great feature. And, and therefore, this language, right? Thou art, but also you are. High, low in the same poetic space. And that's what I was trying to get at in the title of the first book, Poems Spun in Angel Feathers. It's surprising to me how few people in my audience know what homespun is. I found myself having to explain that, um, but that's I'm trying to Did show that juxtaposition. Yeah. yeah, homespun is the cloth that people wove at home when they couldn't afford to purchase it during pioneer times, in the early days of the church. Um, but what's interesting to me is the is the conjunction of the two, the intersection of the mundane and the sacred, because I think that's that's what religion is about, you know, that's the bringing the, the weak with the divine, you know. Yeah, which I think, again, I love that about your poems. Let me ask you then about, about poetic voice, because, because there is a very, when I read these poems, uh, there's a very distinctive poetic voice that you have that I really, really love. Um, I wonder whether that voice is just natural to you or if it's the kind of thing you had to learn very carefully to craft you know, as you perfected your own ability to write poems. Um, and, and I guess the second question I have would be this one. Is there any kind of analogy in there or lesson in there for finding a voice in other areas of life? You know, um, as part of religious community, for example, or as a parent or as a teacher? Yeah, that's a great question, a and it makes me pause. How, how does it affect my life? Um, first of all, I try to write in as natural a voice as I can at first. Then I go back in, and you know, poetry, by definition, is charged language, and I want to make sure that each word is doing exactly what I want to. So I will choose, maybe in my draft, I did write about the, the contrast between the trees and the other sounds in that poem, but I may not have used the word squabble. I'll go back and say, how can I get more attention? So I'll pick. So I am crafting a voice, I suppose, in the way that I go back and, and analyze each word choice. Um, but the question of, of, does it relate to how I live? That's really interesting, and I think it does. I'm thinking about the process of raising children. I have young adults now who are um, in the process of finishing up a mission they're at the age when people leave the church and um, we wanted to be very um, I guess proactive about the sorts of challenges they would have to their testimonies or their decisions to live a committed faithful life um, so I think we tried to tell the truth about the holy and the not as holy aspects of a church culture for example so I think in a, in a broader, more symbolic way, I've been trying to speak in a voice that joins both of those things to create a space for myself and the people around me that this is an okay place to hang, right? You can acknowledge flaws of things and live in dirtiness sometimes and yet still be experiencing the holy, which is, it kind of gets back to that poem about Joseph Smith, right? The conjunction between sacred and profane even, a, a flawed prophet, which hallelujah, I'm really glad because yeah. I, you know, I'm so flawed myself. The good news to me is that God can use someone who's 
kind of screwed up in some ways <laughs> to bring good things to the world. I really appreciate that. What's interesting about that, about that finding of one's voice, I, I even think about, um, I mean, you mentioned, I think very poignantly, um, the connection between poetry, poetic voice, and parenting. I'll mention, if my, I'm not a poet, but just as a, as a scholar, I think about the reasons why I went into higher education in the first place. It really was a, a kind of a spiritual odyssey for me. Um, and it's so easy to lose that under the pressures of trying to find a place in the profession of higher education. It's taken me, it took me about 15 plus years to get back to the place as a, as a, as a working professor, even at a place like BYU, which is university, where I could once again ask myself the question in a real way, wait, okay, so that spiritual odyssey that got me here in the first place, where am I on that? Have I attended to that with sufficient self-consciousness? I'm not sure. So that even a sense of who one is, finding that fully elaborated, fully enunciated, is not obvious, not easy in, uh, in, 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 in life. So you're, in a lot of ways, you're searching for and crafting your own voice. Yeah, very much so. That's why I asked the question. Because <laughs> I, mean, I, I love how you do it in the poem, and I thought, is this like, how, how does that relate to the rest of life? Yeah, thank you for that. We have time here, I'd like maybe to ask you one more question. Um, uh, as you think about your craft, again, these, these are, I, I, I love these volumes of poems. Um, I'm wondering, though, I, they inspire me to ask this question. Are there things that you wish you could do as a poet that you can envision, maybe you can almost hear, but you can't yet quite get there? I mean, if that's the case, do you find yourself conscientiously moving towards some kind of creative horizon? You know, what's still in front of you? Yes, I am aware of <laughs> ways that I would like to get stronger as a poet. I have always had the weakness of caring too much about meaning over language. So that makes me tend to be a little bit prosy, a little bit over-controlled, a little bit scared of the wild. And I think the best poetry does embrace the wild and the surprise. Um, and I, I would like to push myself to take more risks that way. It's tricky because there's, there's this task of building an audience and the audience that I write for and the topics that I want to take on like to be told straight out what I mean. Like they appreciate more accessible poetry and I'm not sure they would follow me there, but I don't want to squelch my creativity out of fear of whether I'll find an audience. So I'd like to push myself to be a little bit less controlled and to and to play more with language than I have been in the past. Well, I think that um, that's a that's a noble ambition. I, it, to my to my eye, you already do that awfully well. Um, these are such great books of poems, and what a delight to talk with you today on the podcast. Thank you so much, Darlene, for your time today. Thank you for having me. What a great reader you are, an appreciator. <laughs> what could bring me more joy? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Faith and Imagination Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by the Faith and Imagination Institute, the BYU Humanities Center, and the College of Humanities at Brigham Young University, and is produced and edited by Sophia Snyder. The music for this podcast is composed by Ethan Wickman and is performed by Nicholas Phillips and Albany Records. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. And if you're interested in other episodes, check out our website at humanitycenter.byu.edu. Thanks again for listening.